Hi there, I'm Dr. Robert Fox. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Echo on substance use about approaches to substance use. Recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. My name's David Ball. I'm a journalist based in Vancouver, and I've spent more than a decade reporting on substance use, opioids, and the current crisis. If you're a regular listener, you've heard me before, but you haven't heard my co-host, Dr. Robert Fox. Dr. Fox, I'm so happy to have you here, and uh, do you mind introducing yourself? Thanks, David. I'm happy to be here. My name is Robert Fox, and I'm a family physician and addiction medicine specialist working at Seabird Island Health Center in the Fraser Valley on Stalo Territory. Uh, I'm originally from Southern Alberta, the Blood Tribe, uh, the Kainai Nation. Well, really honored to have you on this podcast, and you obviously have a ton of relevant experience to bring to this show, so I'm really excited to learn from you too. So this is a podcast for healthcare providers. Dr. Fox and I will be focusing today on issues in British Columbia on opioid use disorder. David, I'm excited to do this with you. We're going to hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experience on approaches to substance use care that work. So today we're talking about Indigenous health. We know that people are dying every day because of the overdose crisis, but Indigenous peoples in our region face disproportionate harms. If you're Indigenous, you're four times more likely to die of an overdose than the rest of the population. According to the First Nations Health Authority, First Nations women are even more impacted. In 2018, 39% of all fatal overdoses among First Nations people were women compared with a death rate of 17% for women who are not of First Nations descent. This is obviously its own crisis and tragedy, but while First Nations and Métis and Inuit people are disproportionately harmed by the, the crisis, Indigenous people themselves are fighting for change. And among those on the front lines are peer advocates such as the Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society and the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network. Today we're looking at the issues surrounding Indigenous people and the opioid crisis. As always, any papers or research we cite can be found in our show notes. On today's show, we're excited to be talking with Dr. Terry Aldred. She's an outreach primary care doctor for Carrier Sakani Family Services. She travels to reserves in northern BC from her Prince George home to deliver health care to Indigenous people in remote locations. But first, we're going to hear from Opokwani, also known as Claudette Cardinal, on the direct experiences of accessing care as an Indigenous person. That's right. She's Cree and a community investigator with the Canadian Observational Cohort Collaboration, or CANOC. And I was excited to have the chance to speak with her about her experiences. Let's take a listen. Well, my name is Wapokwini. That's Cree for flower. Um, I'm from Alberta originally. I'm a grandmother, a mother. I've been living... Oh, in total, maybe seven years undiagnosed and then 25 years of being diagnosed with HIV. Uh, My CD4 back then when I was diagnosed was like 250. So I was almost an AIDS case. And when I left Alberta to try and make amends with family, find the right doctor out here, I was sent to a 
doctor that performed a sterilization on my right fallopian, my tubes on the right side at 27. That's one thing I regret. People always ask you, what do you regret? That's the one thing I regret because I would have been, I could have had maybe one more child. Um, I'm an intergenerational uh, survivor of residential school. Both parents went. Um, so there was no proper upbringing, I guess you want to say. And for me to unlearn the unhealthy behaviors of my past and to learn and to forgive both parents and to learn what that is to be my own individual person. My, my illicit drug day started when I was like, uh, 18 to 20. That's when I was downtown the drag in Edmonton. Uh, I was first intrigued. I thought it was, oh, exciting. The life of the drag and the, all that goes on. I remember injecting the first time T's and R's and, uh, T's and R's are Talwin and Ritlin. I was injecting cocaine. I was injecting, uh, speed. Um, MM, MMDA, I overdosed on that back then and then went to treatment, I think, at the age of 21. So I've been in treatment a few times. So 16 is when I went self-administered and knew I had some kind of a problem. Did you ever have any access to programs that were kind of indigenous informed? Uh, uh, the two programs, the, the one out in Palm Makers and the one um, uh, just outside of where I'm from, Kihiwan. Yeah, those were um, indigenous led. What was, what was important about that? And did that help them be effective for you? It did, but I didn't take the lessons that I learned there and put them into practice until later in life. I think it was 30, I was 33. And that's when I picked out my own birthday, picked out my own birthday gift was rod and reel. And that's when I got hooked on fishing. And that's when my addiction to alcohol was kind of like, okay, what about fishing was it that uh, that helped you? That's an interesting recovery model. Um, being out in nature, centering myself, and I'm patient. I'm, I know the fish are there. They don't sleep. So there's always fish. There, and I have the patience to wait. And I won't go until all my worms are gone. It, it, it really calms me. And it's like, I still have to catch one, give one away, and then fish for myself. So... That's the protocol. What does harm reduction mean to you, Claudette? For me, it is let me do my shit my way. <laughs> because it's working. Like For me, in the most part, harm reduction for me is allowing myself to continue what's working for me, acknowledging the advice, opinions of others that don't agree, and then just to continue on my path, because if you keep on listening to all the negative talk, then you consume that and it, and it gets to you. So I try not to let, let negative stuff bother me. I'm wondering if you, if you have any thoughts about how a doctor who wants to treat opioid use disorder or its concurrence with HIV would approach cultural safety. That, that varies on which, which approach. They would have to know the history of their patient, know if, if they're still practicing their culture or not, and to allow that person to 
express what that looks like to them? I think just the closing remarks would be to the people that are listening that don't be don't be judgmental on the way people access or use certain substances. Just give them that opportunity to heal. It, each individual, it happens when they're ready. Hey, hey. And that was Opokwini, who also goes by Claudette Cardinal. She's a community investigator with the Canadian Observational Cohort Collaboration, or CANOC. I interviewed her in Vancouver. The first thing that I noticed when I listened to her beautiful vignette, and I was really moved and touched by it. The first thing I noticed, though, is that she introduces herself by her Cree name, uh, Opokwini. And this demonstrates a concrete opportunity to practice cultural competence. Ignoring the fact that the patient shared this part of her culture, or worse, making fun of it in any way, shows the patient that her culture is not safe with you. The most basic culturally competent response would be to hear the name without judgment, not making fun of how to pronounce it or what it means, etc. A clinician with more skills in cultural competence might acknowledge the name, put some effort into learning to pronounce it properly, and ask the patient if she would prefer to be called Opokwini and then actually remember to use that name when referring to the patient. The clinician could then demonstrate cultural humility by putting some effort into educating themselves about Indigenous names. For example, what are the various cultural practices around choosing and receiving a name? Putting all these skills together, a clinician might say, Opokwini, am I pronouncing that right? What a beautiful name. I have many patients who prefer to be called by their traditional names. Would you prefer to be called Opokwini? Many patients also have really interesting stories about how they receive the name, other people with the same name, or how their name impacts them. I'd be really interested to hear more about your name if you felt comfortable sharing. And maybe the next time the clinician sees the patient saying, Good morning, Opokwini. So nice to see you today. Can you imagine how Opokwini would respond to that kind of warmth? Totally. And it's such an honor to have someone sharing a piece of their journey with you. You know, that's a gift. Uh, and I guess one of the other things is understanding that people might also be sensitive about something even if they're sharing it and to be just really tender and gentle with what they've shared. What a brave woman and so inspiring to hear her. I'd like to meet her someday and thank her for that story. Our next guest is a friend of mine, Dr. Terry Aldred, is an outreach primary care doctor and a carrier member from the Clasden Nation. Dr. Aldred lives in Prince George and works for Carrier Sikani Family Services to deliver health care to Indigenous people in remote regions of British Columbia. Carrier Sikani Family Services provides culturally grounded, holistic wellness for Indigenous people in the Carrier and Sikani territories in North Central BC. Welcome, Dr. Aldred. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Aldred. First off, could you tell us a bit about why you decided to pursue a life in medicine? I was a third-year undergrad student who was thinking about a career in the health sciences somewhere. Um, and at the time, I was thinking pharmacy. And my 
reason for this was that I wanted to develop like an interdisciplinary um, team of people who would go out to First Nations communities in my traditional territory, which is generally um, filled with many very small communities of maybe um, around 100 to a couple hundred people. And I was explaining this one day to a couple of my mentors and teachers in my science program. And their response was that they thought it would be easier for me to fulfill my dream if I went into medicine. And I had essentially laughed in their face because I never even considered um, medicine. It wasn't it wasn't in my horizon, so to speak. Um, I never met an Indigenous doctor, didn't even know they existed. Um And so I I laughed and they're like, what's so funny? I'm like, I don't really know where doctors come from, but I'm fairly certain they don't come from where I come from. And they thought I was crazy and that I could go into medicine. And so they essentially um, convinced me over the next few months that I should apply. And so they helped me with the application and wrote my letters of reference. And um, so I applied with the caveat that I was never in a million years going to get in. Um, and then I got in and it, it was the first time in my life that I felt excitified, which was a mixture of um, excitement and terror. <laughs> um, and I definitely didn't know what to expect, um, but it definitely since then has been a marker for me that I'm I'm on the right track. One of the teachings for my elders was, you know, if fear is the only thing holding you back, then it's, it's your past. So it's definitely has helped me grow and challenged me more than uh, I could ever imagine any other path would have. That's really great. Thanks for sharing that um, that influence. I wanted to, to talk a bit about the opioid crisis because uh, it's the subject of this show. And um, as we know, it's disproportionately harming Indigenous folks. Why do you think we're seeing such a serious disproportionate statistics, like just such devastating numbers? I mean, I think the root cause is trauma and the trauma has been caused because of colonization um, as well as current um, barriers and current colonialism really as well as racism and discrimination in not just healthcare but in all of our systems and so I think um, as a result of that um, that's why we see the current statistics we do which I think doesn't reflect on indigenous people but it really f- reflects on a, a system or systems um, that really have um, failed First Nations people. Hmm. And would you say that's true also as to why we might be seeing such high disproportionate numbers of indigenous women who are affected by this? Absolutely. I think one of the things around um, the history with Indigenous women is, um, you know, when settlers first came, they really that they focused a lot of their data collecting and, um, you know, analysis and recording of Indigenous people were focused on men. And so um, a lot of the recordings of traditional women's practices um, were lost. So there was less documentation. Um, And as well as when they started um, implementing colonial structures that disproportionately um, favored men over women, um, including the built-in sexism into the Indian Act, which discriminated against women who married non, um, non-Indigenous non men by removing their status. I think the intersection between um, the sexism that came in as well as the racism is why we're seeing the disproportionate um, effect on Indigenous women. Can you elaborate a little bit more on trauma um, and how it might be increasing the amount of opioid overdoses? 
Um, so trauma fundamentally, um, you know, we now know fundamentally changes the development of our brains um, and our physiology. So how our hormone system uh, reacts to the brain. And really, this causes more think behaviors like impulsivity. It disrupts our language centers so that when, um, you know, when we're um, experiencing difficult or challenging or even big good emotions, um, we actually find it really hard to communicate that and express those things. Um, and so there's lots of ways that trauma fundamentally can set up multiple barriers. Um, and using things like substances is often a way to self-soothe a system that is um, constantly hijacked or activated. That's so fascinating, that physiology of trauma. We hear uh, a lot about unequal barriers to accessing care for Indigenous peoples, not just addiction treatments or opioid agonist therapies, but healthcare in general. Can you give us some specific examples of what that looks like? Yeah, so when we're looking at the history of colonialism and how and how it manifests, so things like the um, TB hospitals or Indian hospitals, um, the forced and coerced sterilization of Indigenous women, as well as the nutrition experiments in residential schools. A lot of these things um, have resulted in mistrust and of the healthcare system and systems in general. And so I think that that leads to a lot of people not accessing. Um, and that's not even coming to um, the fact that access can be more of a challenge, especially if we're looking at um, rural remote communities, which have the added, that added barrier. You know, some some rural remote communities may not have access to self like cellular um, networks or Wi-Fi um, or have um, or have decreased access in whatever way. And then when you're looking at people with addictions, they may not have um, they may not have like a cell phone or or a computer or some other way. And so um, it's really great to have virtual platforms um, that that people can connect to. Um, there are like a, a few of the FNHA virtual platforms like Doctor of the Day and the Virtual Substance Use and Psychiatry Pathway um, that can improve access. But again, if there's a barrier and not being able to um, connect through those virtual platforms for people, then, then again, they kind of miss out on that. And so I just wanted to highlight that kind of need to identify that as, as a determinant of health because it does significantly impact um access or ability to connect. Thank you for mentioning that because I got to tell you, since we've been doing telemedicine with COVID, especially trying to contact my opioid use disorder patients, their, their access to a telephone, like a cell phone, can be so frustrating. I mean, for me, but even like much more so for them, I can they can phone and give us their phone number and 30 minutes later, they may not have that phone or the minutes are gone. And you, it, so it's, it's improvement, but we still need to make sure they get equitable access to just phones. Absolutely. For sure. Mm. Yeah. You work for Carrier Sakani Family Services, and that incorporates the values and cultural traditions informed by Carrier Sakani Nations and everything kind of you do. But obviously, I think we know not a lot of or not all Indigenous patients have access to culturally safe programs. So I'm wondering what advice you might have for clinicians uh, whose recovery patients don't have culturally safe options. How can they incorporate some of the lessons that you work through? 
The first principle is that, um, you know, Indigenous um, people and nations are incredibly diverse across Canada. Um, and oftentimes you could be seeing people from from all over the province. And BC is um, one of the most diverse provinces or the most diverse province when it comes to Indigenous nations in Canada. So there's not going to be a one or even a few principles that's going to resonate with everyone. Um, and then the next thing is that to always check in on on if um, um, traditional or ceremonial or land based practices or something that the that the patient values and wants to include in their treatment. Again, because of the history of colonialism, there's a um, certain people who who that may not resonate, or it may even bring up um, you know um, memories and, and thoughts that that either are painful for them for for whatever reason or or are associated with with trauma that they may have experienced and so it's always important to to just kind of double check on those things um and so when you're looking at health through a holistic lens, that's one of the things that all of us can take into our practice and just inquire like around, um, is there something that you do that helps keep you spiritually healthy and well? And what does that look like now versus what are, what would you like it to look like? Maybe there's a, a goal or, or something that we can work on together. So maybe it is like, well, you know, I, I pray sometimes now, but I would really love to go to a sweat. Then that's something that, that you can help the person work towards potentially. Um, or I would really like to regularly smudge or do a cedar brushing. Um, also, depending on where the person, um, where you're seeing the person um, in like more urban environments, um, usually the Society of like Native Friendship Centers can be a great resource um, to help kind of build that kind of urban connection. Um, I know FNHA is working on an urban and away from home um, program to help kind of connect again those individuals um, who may be displaced from their communities and most communities do like have health centers and things like that that may also have some supports that's very powerful and to me having like looked at issues around post-traumatic stress disorder and intergenerational trauma a lot of the things you just listed on all of those areas are things that help with trauma uh, and being less isolated, finding empath empathetic relationships and connections, being outside, uh, doing things that build a sense of mastery. So you're getting at kind of the root cause there. Absolutely. And um, one of the things I'll add um, actually uh, to that is drumming. So even if you don't know a song, um, the actual act of drumming, because it utilizes both sides of the brain um, and your auditory connection is actually um, proven to help to um switch you from like a sympathetic drive um, into more of a parasympathetic system. Um, and as well as over the long term, if it's something that becomes a practice for you, um, can also help to heal trauma, as well as practices that have like re repetitive movements. That, that reminds me of the experience I've seen of other patients and even myself who may have been, didn't grow up with a lot of traditional or cultural practices in our lives. And the first time that I can recall hearing drumming at like a powwow, and I just lit up and I can see it as well. I've seen it in other patients when they hear that, when they just light up something inside them, the drumming really connects with them. I've, I can tell you from my own experience and I've, I've seen it and I felt to myself, it is very powerful. 
with all of the concepts you kind of brought up in mind, there's so many practical things in all of this that I think clinicians can apply in their practice right away, as well as the kind of systemic advocacy and allyship that you talked about as well. So with some of these concepts, Dr. Aldred, what are a few of the best practices you'd suggest for clinicians, especially for those who are not Indigenous, but working with Indigenous patients with substance use disorders? Well, I, I mean, I think the, you know, I think a lot of these will, will you know, span, um, span Indigenous and non-Indigenous patients. You know, I think that one of the fundamental attributes is kindness, you know, um, and kindness for me is really heart centered. So it's different than just being nice, which often could be forced and, and that. But when we're really, truly authentically kind, um, you, my favorite definition of kindness is, um, which I think comes from Brene Brown, but <laughs> it's essentially it's love in action. Um, and to and to me, um, being able to sit in that way is really important. And so. One of the best ways to be kind is to make sure that you're looking after your own medicine wheel in a good way. Um, and so that you're ensuring that your cup is filled up because when you are healthy and well, you spread your wellness. And to me, it's really important to, um, it helps to address those biases where, where, you know, we, where we want to victim blame essentially, or we want to judge people who use substances, but to really come back to the fact that, you know, people who um, have addictions often have a huge history of trauma, probably a history that that they may never fully understand and may never fully be able to communicate to you. And and I think also addressing the need that their self-worth is intact in who they are, no matter what. And so no amount of trauma that happened to them, no amount of substances that they use diminishes um, who they are as a person um, and their value and worth. And so you may have patients who relapse 20 times, and that's okay, um, and, and it's not your own personal failure. It's, it's part of the disease. It's part of the illness. And, um, yeah. And so I, I think that those are, are some of the things that I would really recommend and, you know, um, exploring obviously the role of ceremony and traditions and culture with them, because I think, you know, I think it's important for all of us to know who we are, but I think for Indigenous people, because of colonialism and having, you know, that identity, um, you know, essentially um, taken away from them um, has really left a, a huge soul wound. Um, and being able to reconnect or bring some of those practices in can be really, really important. Um, and time, like I know it's so challenging and fee-for-service environments or certain environments, um, but really, you know, allowing people time to come in, be able to settle, um, and, and to um, just have that opportunity to build relationship with you, I think is really important. Dr. Aldred, thank you so much for your time. That's all of our questions. I just love to say that I'm really, really, really glad that you ended up going into medicine, even though you laughed at the idea. <laughs> thank you. you know, I was about to say the exact same thing. I think I can see what your mentors back there must have seen. <laughs> So I'm so thankful that you did this interview with us. I'm, I learned so much from it. Thank you so much. Or Chalia, you have honored me. It was a real pleasure to come. Thank you.
Before we end today's show, let's look at some of the clinical pearls that we could take from this that might be practical and applied in clinical practice. Dr. Fox, what are you taking from this? Number one, it is important to practice cultural safety. Cultural safety is an approach to healthcare delivery that emphasizes awareness and introspection on the part of the clinician. It is awareness of power imbalances in society, in healthcare, and in their own interactions. It is being introspective about their own assumptions, biases, and values. The goal is for all people who interact with a culturally safe healthcare provider to feel respected and safe. So, for example, a physician interacting with Opokwini when she first moved to BC would ask themselves, how did Opokwini come to be here at this time, having undiagnosed HIV and having all these other problems in her life? And they would reflect on the power imbalances in society that brought her there, but also be introspective about how they're reacting to her based on their own assumptions, biases, and values. I think Dr. Aldred gave a really good example of a physician who has been introspective about their own assumptions, biases, and values, and is very aware of power imbalances in society. Number two, it is important to realize that Indigenous peoples continue to have considerably less access to determinants of good health because Canada was purposefully structured this way. This includes less income, education, food security, clean water, and adequate housing. The cultural safety approach requires a clinician to be aware of this inequality and how power differences led to it and how power differences perpetuate it. Specifically, they will be aware of historical government policies that contributed to inequality, including, but not limited to, colonization, residential schools, and the 60s scoop. Dr. Aldred gave a really good example of how the structure of Canada relates to the very different uh, statistic around the mortality of First Nations women in overdose versus non-First Nations women. And third, culturally competent care results in a better experience for both patient, providers, and organizations. Cultural competency does not refer to learning details about cultures other than our own. As Dr. Aldred point, pointed out, there are dozens of different First Nations in BC, all with their own language, culture, and traditions. And it would be unreasonable to expect any healthcare provider to learn all of them. Instead, cultural competency refers to everything that is needed for healthcare to be effectively delivered in cross-cultural situations. It includes our professional attitudes, knowledge, and skills, as well as an organization's policies. Patients and providers are more engaged and satisfied when provided with culturally competent care. Thank you so much, Dr. Fox, for those really practical pearls and to all of our guests today for helping uh, us think about these issues, Opokwini, also known as Claudette Cardinal, and Dr. Terry Aldred. You can find links to the studies we mentioned during the show in our show notes. This is the final of six episodes of the first series of Addiction Practice Pod. Thank you so much for listening. 
We plan to be back in 2021 with another series of the podcast. We hope you can help us create the best possible podcast by filling out our short survey. Just click the link in the show notes. To learn more about the BC Echo on Substance Use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. And the program was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada. The views expressed here do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. I'm Dr. Robert Fox. And I'm David Ball. Thank you so much for listening.